And please have 2 Corinthians uh, 12 on your lap. And let me tell you about the playground. The playground in Wimborne was a place where I got into my first fight. I'm sure that would be your first um, gasp of the afternoon. Do I hear a gasp? Yes, uh, I was having a bad day, and uh, I think I failed. I got a pretty poor score on my maths test. And I went to speak to Darren Bagg, who was one of my closest friends, only because he had the cricket set. Uh, and Darren refused to let me play. And so being passive-aggressive and then physically aggressive, I ended up punching him because he said no, and I wanted to let my frustrations about maths come out. But in the playground, the conversation was often about football cars or my dad being better than your dad. Remember those conversations? You could say it wasn't a mobile phone because they hadn't really been invented yet, apart from the brick that Del Boy used to have, and only fools and horses. But you would say, my dad is better than your dad because. My mum is better than your mum because. And uh, we would use our parents. We would use something to compare ourselves with our friends and to look down upon them and so that they would look up upon us. We're always into comparison. And the older you get, as we said before, it gets no better. It just gets subtler. And so, oh, really, your child goes to that school. Okay. Um, oh, you're a member of that gym. Oh, you've, your child has that many behavior points. Um, oh, you've got that car. You've got that model of gadgetry. You live in that postcode. Every way we can, we compare. So we look down upon them, and they look up upon us. There's a lot of that going on in Corinth. 2,000 years ago, these two books that are written to a very, very messy church, it has been said. If you think, oh, I'd love to be part of the early church, wouldn't that have been great? Just read Corinth and see if you want to still be part of that church. In Corinth, it was a mess because egos were getting bigger and bigger. Sin was considered small. Uh, legal um, exercises were happening with fellow believers in the church, and that's just 1 Corinthians. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, that is the supreme virtue, was very, very small, and things that are not so important were becoming big. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to fight, not for his life, but for his authority as an apostle. He's defending his ministry. That's really the... Uh, the lesson of 2 Corinthians. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, you get this joke. It's one of the, the strange kind of jokes where Paul is not ripping his shirt open, but people were starting to rip their shirts open and say, we are super apostles. And Paul says, well, whilst you're a super apostle, I'm going to call you a hyper apostle. And it gets to this uh, kind of one-upmanship and bragging and boasting in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. You can see this. Why not go the whole way? I'm going to call you a hyper Apostle, you're the biggest and the best. Who am I in comparison to you? But the problem was this was not a joke. The claims that the super apostles were making in Corinth were endangering the church, and they were marginalizing the Apostle Paul's ministry. What was he going to do? He knew that there's no uh, fruit in boasting. He wanted to warn the baby Christians and to say, don't follow these super apostles who kind of rip their toga open and uh, reveal their lycra underneath as they have their grapes and red juice or wine or whatever they have. Don't follow them. If you follow their teaching, it's going to lead to destruction. Keep the true gospel. Keep listening to my words that mirror the words of Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's all you need. But Paul is in this terrible position so that by we get to chapter 12 of 
2 Corinthians, he has to defend himself. And he has to do something he doesn't want to do, which is to start to boast. These are super apostles, you see, were looking down on Paul with their togas open because they were saying, we've been to the heavens. We've had these great spiritual experience. And Paul, you've had nothing. And baby Christians, don't follow Paul because he's a no one. Follow us because we've seen and experienced great things. And so chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, well, you're forcing me to do something I don't want to do but you're forcing me out of love to do something that I must do to protect my ministry and your love for the Lord Jesus. And so he says this, chapter 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I have to talk about what God has revealed to me and shown to me, but it's something I don't want to do because then it draws attention to myself, and it's the one thing I don't want to do. Paul is so Holy Spirit-like. It's like a floodlight. He just wants to point to Jesus and away from himself. And look at what he does, verses 2 to 6 of chapter 12. He says, my experience is so different from your bragging about spiritual experiences. I've had two experiences that God has given to me. I've had an experience from heaven, verses 7 to 10. But then I've had a second experience, and it's an experience of a thorn. One is the experience of heaven, verses 2 to 6. But the second one is an experience of a thorn, verses 7 to 10. And Paul is not saying, like I did in the playground, perhaps you did as well, well, my revelations are bigger than your revelations, my experience are better than yours. He's not doing that at all. But he does, and he must say, I need to prove to you that my ministry is valid, that the gospel that I shared with you is the authentic gospel. And whilst these super-apostles, these hyper-apostles may brag and look down on me, Mine are not better, but they are different, and their differentness shows their authenticity and that they come from God, unlike the super apostles' experiences that are very different. I just want to look in the time we have at these two experiences he has, one from heaven, verses 2 to 6, and secondarily, the thorn, verses 7 to 10. Let's look at verses 2 to 6 together. The experience of heaven. God gave Paul an experience of heaven. Look at verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about him. I won't boast about me, but I could boast about him. I wouldn't be a fool because it would be the truth, but I won't. Paul, using the third person, is talking about himself. He hates talking about himself, and so he uses the third person. He hates talking about his spiritual experiences, and straight away in these verses, verses 2 through 5, he's showing us something very, very important about how one should speak about spiritual experiences. Paul is a, is a model of how people should talk about spiritual experiences that are high and lofty. People throughout the history of the church, modern and old, who God has drawn into his presence, who he's lifted up, who have magnificent, overwhelming experiences of the living God, their commonality is they hate to talk about it. A sign of the genuine work of God, a deep spiritual experience, is a deep, humble humility that comes because you come into the presence of God and you realize it's not about you. 
God has this amazing uh, experience that he shows you some of his glory. So you see who you are. You see his majesty and might and power. And you never, ever, ever draw attention to yourself when that genuinely happens. Unlike the super, the hyper apostles in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me give an example, a very modern example, of a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Many of you know him. He was a Welsh preacher who uh, spent a long time ministering to a church up in London. He was one of the people who had this deep, rich, spiritual experience where God revealed his glory in a magnificent and overwhelming way right into his heart. And he hated to talk about it. And it was never written about until after his death. It's very interesting. One of his uh, biographers found out this story in 1949. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his great preacher, was so burnt out, he was so physically tired, he was so discouraged, effectively he was depressed, he took the whole summer off of preaching. Now there's an idea. And he went back to Wales, because that's where God speaks to people, clearly, if you're Welsh. He went back to Wales and he tried to get himself together. He was so low. He went away even from his close family. He couldn't read much. He, he read loads, but he couldn't read much. He uh, read the Bible daily, vast amounts, but he couldn't read much of the Bible as well. And he's trying to get up every day and study and pray and read the scriptures, read Christian literature. He's getting no comfort at all. One morning, gets up at six, normal practice, and he was still in this deep spiritual thirst and agony of the soul. He said he was just feeling far from God. I was reeling from him. I couldn't pray. I hadn't prayed. And he starts to get dressed, says the biographer. He's lying, uh, lying on his bed. It was one of the Christian books that he was trying to read and couldn't do it. And as he was getting dressed, he looked at one of the books, and his eye caught one word. It was the word glory. And the biographer says of his experience, Lloyd-Jones says instantly it was like a blaze of light he felt the very glory of God surround him, the nearness and the reality of God, heaven and his own title assuring him of heaven, had become overwhelming truths to his heart. He was in a spirit of ecstasy and joy. And he fell to the ground and wept. And he remained in this basic condition for several days. What's interesting, as I read on, was the struggle continued. The struggle came back as the summer went on. But later that summer, the same thing, this deep, overwhelming sense of the glory and majesty and might and love of God and his access to God through the Son, Jesus Christ, came upon his heart, and he was a new man. And he never wrote about it. And he wrote a lot. He never spoke about it. This account was found out through friendship. He never talked about it. And it only came out after he died. And this biographer kind of dug up this summer, the summer of uh, 49, through friends. And Lloyd-Jones put himself on a spiritual quest. He started to read the uh, journals and biographies of other great spiritual leaders to see if uh, they had experienced something of the same thing. And it was true. Anyone who has this great spiritual experience of God sees his might and majesty and power, they don't really want to talk about it because they don't want to brag. <coughs> They want to take the attention away from themselves and put it solely on God. You don't hear people very, speaking very openly about this. They don't say, oh, well, God, is a, God has spoken to me and, and I've had this experience. 
people who share this, it's a vastly lower order than the experience that uh, Paul experienced, the uh, experience that uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, experienced as well. When people see and sense the deep, satisfying, glorious, majestic nature of God, it always produces a holy shyness, a kind of a holy humility. But it also equips you with the boldness to speak about the Lord Jesus as well. It's never chapter 11, look at me. It's always chapter 12, look at Jesus. And here's the hint in verse 6, as Amory read it so clearly. Paul says, the reason I refrain from boasting is because I want no one to think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. That's the key. That's the key. I don't want to speak about my experience because then you'll think I'm great in and of myself. I want you to think that God is great. Um, I asked Joe a question uh, just earlier today uh, because I was just trying to think back and my memory's beginning to go, age 43. Um, and I said, can you think of a time where someone has come to us and said something that begins with the sentence, God has told me to? And she said, yes, someone asked me out. Say, God has told me to ask you out. And I said, what did you say? She said, well, I turned them down. Um, <laughs> but sometimes people come to you and they say, God has told me to. God has told me to leave this church because it's not fulfilling my needs. God has told me to move house because I need to tear down this one and build a bigger one. Or which church will you go to? That doesn't really matter. God has told me to, yeah? And as soon as you, you hear those words... It's the very opposite of verse 6. When someone says, God has told me to, immediately you are on a cherry picker, a spiritual cherry picker, and you are elevated above contradiction. No one can speak to you. I mean, imagine if someone sort of begins a sentence, well, I don't know if God is right. <laughs> no one's going to say that to you when you begin your sentence that says, I, uh, well, God has told me to. It's an unchallengeable position that you are 25 feet above contradiction. No one can speak to you. All your authority is based on your experience. Do you see? God has spoken to me. God has told me to do this. God has told me this is right. And this is from God. And very often we can be very, very deceived. Verse 6, Paul says, no, I don't want you to judge my ministry by my experiences, and that's why I've not told you about this. That's why I'm going to speak about this in the third person. My authority in what I say and what I do comes from my life. Look and see if I have a changed life. Look at what I say and do, not because of what I, or how I made you feel, not because of what I felt myself, not because of what I've experienced in my life. My authority is to be seen in what I say and what I do. Do you see in my heart the change character. If I had an experience of God, it must be seen in a changed heart, which is seen in a changed life. It's head, heart, and hands. Am I a person, am I a minister, says Paul, of integrity? If you look into my life, as you've heard my words, when I came to you and planted the church, do you see godliness? Do you see someone who's humble? Do you see someone who's self-seeking or someone who's trying to serve God? Who do you see? Can you see in Paul's ministry someone whom God has drawn near to as he has drawn them to himself? That's where the authority comes from, not the experience. Because we can be so deluded. And so Paul says, I'm going to talk 
not the way these super apostles do, not lording over this experience that I've had. I don't want to be conceited, verse 6. I want you to see who God is, and I want you to take him at his word and trust his promises. That's why he's so reticent to speak about it. Look at verse 2. 14 years ago, I had a revelation. I've never told anyone about it before. I hate to tell it, tell it to you now. And in a sense, I'm going to do everything I can to show you how much I hate talking about it. But I'm going to tell you because these other people are damaging my ministry. And think about Paul's life. He had all sorts of spiritual experiences. He could have said again, let me tell you what happens in Acts chapter 9. When I saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, all through the book of Acts, he had dreams and visions. None of those are mentioned at all. But now, this must have been the Premier League spiritual experience of his life. And he had a lot, Paul. And yet he says, look at verses 1 to 3. That's the introduction to what he says. And then he has four verses of reflection. That's verses 4 to 7. And all you get to describe this experience is about three or four words. Verse 2, I went to the third heaven. And that's it. I mean, it's so funny that Paul was determined not to tell us about this because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. It's not about what I experienced. It happened to me. It's about God and his glory. This uh, taken up to the third heaven, it's just an old traditional way of saying, I went up to heaven, I went up to the presence of God. I went through the, the clouds, that's the first kind of uh, level. I've gone up through the stars, that was the second. I've gone up into God's presence. But he doesn't tell us a thing about it. It's hilarious. 14 years ago, I could tell you about this experience I had, but I'm not going to. And you might think, oh, come on, this is so far removed. I've not experienced this. This has never happened to me. But friends, let me remind you of the gospel. If you're a Christian here this afternoon, you have exactly the same access to the experience that Paul has experienced through Christ, by faith. God sees you in Christ. He sees Christ's perfect record, not what you did last week. And so you can go to the Father of the universe in the strength of Jesus Christ. Not defined by your past, not defined by your present or what will happen this week. And so in a certain sense, we have as much access to God as Paul did. Now that's pretty remarkable at 10 to 5 on a uh, Sunday afternoon. And so we can share in his experience of heaven now, but not yet, as we draw near to God. That's the first one. Here's the second one. It's quicker. The thorn experience. One was of heaven. The second experience that Paul says about to defend his ministry and really to burst the bubble and to rip the T-shirts, rip the lycra of the super, the hyper apostles, is to say, you may be able to relate to a heavenly spiritual experience, but there's no way you'll be able to relate to the second one. Verses 7 to 10. God sent me a thorn. Verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great, surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. That word torment is kind of a bad translation. Um, the King James Bible uh, has a better word. It means to buffet me. You think when was the last time you used that to select food off a buffet table? There's another meaning. Buffet means to kind of deflate, to burst the bubble. It means to take the courage out of someone, to discourage. And Paul is saying, to paraphrase, God has sent something into my life through Satan, that's another message, um, to discourage me and to cast me down. God has done this because I need this 
so that I don't become conceited and inflated and puffed up like the rest of the Corinthian super apostles. I mean, I don't know about these other super apostles, chapter 11, but this is genuine Christian experience, says Paul. In the Christian experience, by like your left and right foot, strength and weakness always go together. I mean, here's a picture of someone uh, walking. And I don't know if you've ever tried the ministry of silly walks on a Saturday afternoon, where you keep your left foot in one place and you see how far you can get your right foot ahead of you. And you kind of extend and extend and then you fall on your backside, this time of the year in the mud. Your uh, left foot always has to go in reasonably close proximity to your right foot, or you fall over. Yeah, that's how walking begins, right, left, right, left. Think of it like this. Genuine Christian experience is always the left foot of weakness and the right foot of strength. Strength and weakness, weakness and strength, always go together. It's not like a period of weakness and then you get strength and then you go from strength to strength. Strength and weakness is the normal rhythm and pattern of Christian experience. That's Christian experience, that's Christian growth. And Paul is saying, weakness is essential to knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the power of God. Verse 9, Jesus said to me, my power, my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the right foot and the left foot walking forward together. Strength leads to weakness. Weakness leads to strength. Because if we didn't have the thorn, we'd be so puffed up if we didn't have uh, the sense of uh, weakness, we'd be so confident in our own abilities that we wouldn't need God. We think we could do life all by ourselves. We'd be pragmatic. We'd have these experiences now and then, these emotional highs now and then. We could say, I've been to heaven like Paul. I felt really high and aware of, of God's presence at this experience or this place or this service. And we would very quickly forget the goodness of God. And so God in his mercy sends a thorn. Well, what's the thorn? Verse 7, this uh, word flesh, thorn in the flesh, it means a, it's a word that means spiritual flesh. It's, not a, it's very unlikely to be a physical thing. Some people say it could be loss of Paul's sight that happened later in his life. It could be that. But in all probability, it means a spiritual condition that God sent to Paul, kind of a besetting sin that he tried his best, but he couldn't get rid of. Perhaps he was tempted to anger or lust or bitterness, something like that. But Paul says, if it wasn't for that, that sense of felt weakness that God gave to me, I wouldn't have any power in my ministry. Completely different to chapter 11. But it's all success and emotion and power. Here Paul is saying, no, no, weakness is the key to strength. I'm weak because I'm strong in God. You see, if you're weak, if you realise you've come to the end of your own resources, you must cry out to God. If you are weak, then you can only at that point see your strength and confidence in the promises of God. Weakness shows you that God loves you because of Jesus, not because of your strength. It's Tim Keller who said, it's only when Christ is all you have, you realise he's all you really need. It's only when you come to the end of your resources, says the old hymn, that you see the strength that God gives. He giveth again and again and again. I mean, Jacob, he limped. That's weakness. He weaked all his life after he wrestled with God. 
Job was silent for a long time as he was humbled under God's almighty hand. Hagar, well, God found Hagar in the desert place and then sent her back to a place of great difficulty. You see, weakness is the way. Strength is found in the weak place. Strength is found when people realize that God is strong and they are not. But that doesn't happen automatically. That's what's interesting from verse 8. It's not if you just feel weak, then you'll always be strong. That's not how it works. It can work that way. Look at Paul's pleading, verse 8, three times. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's what happened. It's like an email. Um, you know an email, you can do a, an attachment and you can just put you know, type a message to someone, dear Amazon, you got the delivery wrong, again, here's my receipt. Or you can say, dear uh, grandma, here's a picture of the kids, they send you their love. You can send messages, things like that. In this interesting passage, there is a message that has two attachments. First, Paul says he received a thorn and the Satan was the messenger. Satan was the messenger. That means when a bad thing happens to you, Satan, Satan kind of is the delivery person. He attaches a message to it. He attaches an attachment to it. And the question is, will you read it? How will you respond, not to the thorn that's from God, but to the attachment? What do I mean? Well, here are three. Here are three thorns. Sickness, sin, rejection. You fill in the gaps. When you've felt sickness, sin, or rejection, you feel weak, and then you're buffeted. But here's what Paul is saying. When you feel, and when you experience sickness, sin, or rejection, Satan wants to attach a message to that. The discouragement is not the thorn. The, dis the discouragement comes from the attachment. You're a terrible failure. If you were really a Christian, you would not have done this. God doesn't love you. See that person who's rejected you? Well, God doesn't love you either. See that you're, that you're experiencing in your life? That's because of the mistakes you've made in the past. Satan is the messenger, and he puts this attachment on the thorn so that you can be discouraged. But then Paul says there's another message. With every thorn, there is a messenger but there's also another message, a secondary attachment. What's the message from God? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Whether you're uh, discouraged or strengthened all depends on who you listen to, whether the thorn. Which attachment will you open up? Will you open up the attachment from Satan or the attachment from heaven? From God, my grace is sufficient for you. Jonathan Edwards, a very old pastor, not triple jumper, as a different one, he said this when he was writing about Proverbs. He said, Christians are safe, utterly safe. There's a place in Proverbs that says, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And then he goes on in his sermon to say this. He says, the mistake that people make all the time is this. He says, the Bible does not teach that Christians are safe from evil things. Evil things happen to Christians and non-Christians alike. But the Bible says that Christians are safe from the evil of all things. 
the ultimate evil, because of Jesus. Evil things will not have an evil effect on you if you understand the gospel and apply it to your life. We all have besetting sins, greed, selfishness, bitterness, anger, lots more. But when that happens, or resentment, or sickness, when those thorns come, those weaknesses come, which message will you listen to? It's the old temptation from the Garden of Eden. God is not good, he's not loving, he's not kind. And Satan can't create anything new. He decreates, God creates. And so he repeats the same lie in every generation. And in the gospel, you are not safe from evil, but you are safe from the evil of all evils and from the evil one because of Jesus. You're utterly safe. And Paul says, that's what I'm standing on with my ministry as God has drawn me to himself. I don't really want to tell you about it, but I will. I had an authentic experience from heaven. I saw God in his glory. But also I saw God in his glory in the same degree when he sent me a thorn so that I wouldn't become conceited and too big and puffed up and wear a Superman S underneath my toga as well. Because we all do that. But when I am weak, that's when I trust in God. And then I am strong because I trust in his grace, which is always sufficient for me and also for you. Let's pray.